0: over a month ago one of the north american true crime accounts i follow on instagram posted about a scary home invasion case that took place in westminster california i first thought it was just westminster as in the one in england so i was especially interested but that was not the case Nevertheless, my interest remained piqued because I have rarely heard of home invasion cases becoming cases of kidnappings as well. Because most home invasions I've read about were primarily for the purpose of theft and robbery, but the Californian case was different. Michael Alexander Rodriguez and his partner, Michelle Rodriguez, broke into a home at 2.35 in the morning and then kidnapped four people, including a 14-year-old girl and an infant at gunpoint. They then took them to a nearby motel. It was mayhem. Sure, a home invasion is scary, but once it is over, the victims could at least feel like the nightmare is finished and they can start to pick up the pieces of their lives again. A theft or robbery is bad and traumatic, sure, but things are replaceable. Life is not. When a kidnapping is involved, however, the stakes are immeasurably higher. And this was exactly the experience of not only one family, but two families in Loyola Heights, Quezon City, and in Guagua, Pampanga in 1964. This is the case of Cosette Tanwakiyo. Mabuhay lagim fam. After a very much unplanned hiatus, I am finally back. I want to thank you all for the lovely messages, Christmas greetings, and the support you have shown during this five to six week hiatus. I truly appreciate the love and support. I am back on the podcast saddle, so to speak. So from here on out, there will be regular episodes again and early releases for my beloved patrons over at Patreon. Without further ado, Lagim fam, let us get on with today's case. As always, details in the story may be triggering for some people, so please take care of yourselves whilst listening. The unforgiving Filipino sun had already set on Quezon City on the 16th of November 1964, and young Cosette Tanwakiyo was making sure that her homework was ready for the next day. Cosette originally hailed from Guagua Pampanga. She was the daughter of Sixto Tanwakio and Juanita Valenzuela, a prominent couple in the area. The young girl was staying with relatives in Quezon City for school. After all, she attended the much highly regarded school, Marinal College. Cosette felt very much at home with her auntie Lourdes' family. Auntie Lourdes married Bienvenido Cancho, who owned a property right across Marinal College, a rather convenient location for the young Pampangueña. On the night of the 16th of November 1964, family life at the Canchos was just like any other day. Uncle Bienvenido was eating dinner, and Auntie Lourdes was with him. A buzz was heard later on indicating that someone was at the gate. The family's house helper Corazon Garcia made her way to the front gate of the Cancho property. She came back to tell the family that some constabulary soldiers were outside waiting. They wished to see Bienvenido. The head of the Cancho family stood up and told Corazon to open the gate. He followed her shortly to let the visitors in. The first person to step onto the Cancho property was someone named Homer Jinko. He wore a typical constabulary soldier's uniform, so nothing about him initially raised any suspicion. From the only court document available on this case, it would seem that Jinko made it into the Cancho House, at which point both Lourdes and Bienvenido were somewhere else other than the dining room. He then pulled out a handgun and pointed it at the Canchos, who were most probably taken aback by this intrusion and threat of violence. According to this court document, Jinko used the handgun to motion at Lourdes and Bienvenido to go back into the dining room. Following this, two more men entered the Cancho residence. They were also dressed as constabulary soldiers. They would later be identified as Orador Pingol and Angel David. In addition to the three threatening men inside the Canchu home, there was another man standing by the gate, presumably being the group's lookout. Now, Cosette, who was in her room whilst this was all going down, had no idea that her aunt, uncle, and house helper were all held at gunpoint. It was only when she stepped out of her room that she caught sight of Corazon walking by with an armed and uniformed stranger behind her. The stranger was Angel David. When David saw the teenager, he ordered her to proceed to the dining room where the rest of the Cancho household was now being held captive. But then something happened. On the way to the dining room, she saw a familiar face, someone she knew from Pampanga. As it turned out, Cosette knew Orador Pingol, a person who used to work for her family's rice mill back in Guagua. This must have been a very bizarre moment for the young teenager, who probably sensed already that something was very wrong and whatever it was would not be over anytime soon. it seemed like time stood still prolonging the terror that the cancho household felt whilst being held hostage in their own dining room the canchos cosette and corazon were all told to squat on the floor with their backs turned to their captors one of the men homer jinko then barked orders at lourdes telling her to get up and to get her money and jewelry She led him to her bedroom upstairs, and as soon as she got what Jinko told her to get, he quickly pocketed his loot. Meanwhile, downstairs, the gang of men were joined by yet another individual who the family could not identify at that point. From the dining room, the hostages were then hustled into Corazon's room, where Cassette was eventually interrogated. She was asked her name, and instinctively, she disclosed her government name, Corazon Tanduaquillo, and not Cassette. She was then ordered to give all the money she had to Homer Jinko. Her wallet was in her room, so she was ordered to get up and head to her room. In the end, she only had about four pesos to give, but as they were heading back to the rest of the Cancho family, Homer Jinko asked her if she was Cassette. And again, she said, yes. The dynamic suddenly changed. She was asked to step out of the house with the men. It was at this point that it became clear she was being kidnapped. The men passed by the front door of Corazon's room and the rest of the Kancho household looked upon young Cosette being escorted away, probably feeling a devastating sense of helplessness the men said out loud as they walked Cassette away that the family need not to worry. Cosette would be returned eventually. And I think somehow Lourdes, Bienvenido, and Corazon felt like this was nowhere near the truth. Cosette's abductors so far managed to avoid suspicion from her neighbors. How could the rest of the neighborhood know that there was something sinister playing out inside the Gancho residence anyway? Most of the men were dressed in official police uniforms. That exudes trust and authority and makes people think that whatever was going on must be by the book, but they could not be farther from the truth. As young Cassette was led outside and into the back of a black car, one of the men grabbed onto her collar and held it tightly, warning her quietly that if she raised suspicion or called for attention, she'd be killed. Cosette remained quiet, not fully knowing what fate awaited her in the hands of these men. Inside the back seat of the car, Cosette was flanked by two men, three more men were in front of them. She was ordered to keep her head low, to pretend to be asleep. Her hands were tightly tied behind her whilst her eyes and mouth were taped shut now cosette could not really know how long they had been traveling but at some point the man stopped the car and she was dragged out of it and placed into a jute sack her hands still bound she was then thrown into the boot compartment of the car where she remained for the rest of the ride at some point cosette managed to untie her hands but this small moment of victory or freedom was very much fleeting Upon reaching their destination, Cassette was carried out of the compartment, and this was when the men noticed that her hands were now free. They tied them up again, dragged her near a dugout, where she was then lowered and made to lie down on a bamboo cot. Cassette tried to stay awake, fearing what the men could do to her if she ever fell asleep, but this whole ordeal exhausted her, and she could not fight her sleep any longer. Cassette was out cold, and the rest of her extended family in Quezon City, having been left behind by the strange men, had to confront the fact that Cosette was now gone, and there was no indication as to where the young girl from Pampanga was taken. Swarms of police officers were now gathered in and outside of the Cancho home, Agents from the National Bureau of Investigation and even CIS agents were there. Soon enough, this amalgamation of members of different police professionals from various agencies formed a unit that would conduct one of the biggest investigations in the country's history at that time. As for the Kancho family, like many families of abductees, there was not much left to do. After Lourdes informed Cassette's family in Guagua, Pampanga, and after the Tanwaquillos rushed to Quezon City at the horrible news of their daughter's abduction, it was now time to wait. Wait for signs of life, wait for the police to get some leads, wait and not despair too much in the face of so many scenarios that did not bode well for young Cassette. Eventually, Cassette's parents had to go back to Pampanga, thinking that perhaps the kidnappers would call or make their demands known directly to them, and not through the canchos. Nothing happened initially, neither in Guagua nor in Quezon City. But after three or four days, a series of letters arrived by mail in Quezon City. The first one demanded 200,000 pesos from the Canchos, erroneously calling Cassette a child of Lourdes and Bienvenido. After this, two more letters arrived. At this point, both the Canchos and the Tanwaquillos were not coping well. Cassette's father needed to be admitted to the Manila doctor's hospital as a result of shock from his daughter's abduction. Whilst still at the hospital, Sixto Tanuaquillo was shown the two letters, one of which was obviously postmarked in San Fernando, Pampanga. Bizarrely enough, the letter addressed Cosette's mother using her maiden name, Valenzuela. The second letter was a demand for ransom yet again, and for the same amount, 200,000 pesos. The deadline for the ransom drop was initially set for the 21st of November, but was then moved to the 23rd. The letter gave detailed instructions as to date, location, and time for the ransom drop-off. It ended with a threat to Cassette's life, should the ransom not be delivered on time and in the manner specified by the kidnappers. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You could get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In this second letter, a familiar name was mentioned, Rodolfo Manalo. He was a friend of the Tanwaquillos. In this letter, he was described as a trusted man, someone who must become the facilitator of the ransom drop-off. This was odd and certainly pointed at the fact that Cosette's kidnappers were not at all unfamiliar with her family's connections. What truly caught the police's attention though in this second letter was an attached note written by Cosette in English. She addressed her mother and pleaded with her to do whatever it was that her abductors demanded. Cassette reassured her mother in the note that she was in good hands. These addendum notes would become a regular in the many communications from the kidnappers, and we might have to briefly revisit this part of the story much later on. For now, however, let us go back to the 25th of November, 1964, when yet another letter was received, this time by Bienvenido Cancho. The letter was typewritten and postmarked in Manila this time, and inside it was a short note ordering Bienvenido Cancho to deliver an enclosed sealed envelope to Sixto Tanwaquillo. The note was specific and urgent in tone. He needed to hand the enclosed envelope before 4 p.m. on the 25th of November. For some reason, though, Bienvenido decided against following the letter's orders. Instead, he handed the mysterious sealed envelope to Diosdado Lagman, an NBI agent who had become involved in Cassette's case very early on. The note to Sixto essentially berated him for not following previous instructions and warned him that there would only be one chance left to save his daughter. The note laid out some new elaborate instructions for Sixto that involved a meeting at a restaurant at the corner of Claro Emrecto and Rizal Avenue at exactly 4 p.m. on the 25th of November. The note ended with a threat that if anything should go wrong in this ransom drop-off, something bad would happen. The only problem about this whole situation was that the letter was actually not delivered, as I already said, and it was not shown to Six Totanwaki until way after 4 p.m. Miraculously, however, nothing indicated to the family that the kidnappers did something to Cassette as a result of this failed ransom drop-off. Following this, several letters would be sent to the family yet again, showing that the kidnappers were truly desperate for money. At some point, they even lowered the ransom amount before increasing it yet again. They changed the dates of drop-offs, the locations, and or times. Then they chose another ransom emissary who happened to be a priest. They threatened to harm Cassette by beheading her at one point, but there was no indication that they ever did anything to Cassette in those instances, because I think they fully knew that if they did anything to Cassette, they would end up with no money at all. She was their only meal ticket. This dance with the kidnappers went on for a very long time and at this point, we see the Canchos and the Tanwaquillos enter the new year, 1965, without their beloved Cosette. By January 1965, Cosette's loved ones thought that a successful handover was finally going to take place. Yet, another letter was sent by the kidnappers on January 12th for a ransom drop-off on the 19th. The instructions were very specific and elaborate. This time, a father Jose de la Cruz was nominated to be the emissary for the Tanwaquillos. He was a close family friend and he was determined to get the job done to finally put the family out of their misery. At half ten in the evening on the 19th of January, he drove a jeep to Angeles City, specifically to the Sacred Heart Seminary. The drop-off was to be made nearby. He was very careful and meticulous in following the instructions given by Cosette's abductors. The priest waited and waited and waited until three in the morning, but nobody showed up. The Tanwakiyos were devastated. They would then soon receive communications from the kidnappers that it was because of cassette that they failed to show up in angeles city according to them she could not withstand the travel from pampanga to angeles Now just a quick reminder here, this was a given fact in the court document that I used in my research, but it was not clear whether the abductors actually said that they were going to travel from Pampanga to Angeles. If they had indeed disclosed this or let it slip, then it would have been a huge lead for the police that Cosette was being held in Pampanga this makes me think that this was actually not included in their communications to the Cancho and Tanwaki'o families. I think that in their communications to the families after this failed drop-off, they simply said that Cosette could not travel a long distance. And so another drop-off was arranged after this with the same instructions as before. Father de la Cruz was sent on his mission yet again. And again, nothing happened. Whilst the priest was traveling, Cosette's parents received a call from a stranger who introduced himself as George. He informed them that no handover would be taking place that night. Instead, it should take place the day after. But even that handover did not happen. After this, there was a long standstill. There was no communication no proof of life from Cassette, and no leads in the police's investigation. Now, at this point in the episode, I wonder if you could indulge me. I would like to slightly veer off the case's story here and give you a quick overview of just how psychologically damaging it is to be the victim of a kidnapping and to be the ones left behind, meaning the family and friends. For the longest time, there's not been any extensive study on kidnapping as a crime and how it impacts the victim and everyone else. In the early 2000s, however, academics may have finally realized that this was actually a good area to study and something worth investing their energy into. In 2009, a study by the Aberdeen Centre for Trauma Research in Scotland found that the quote, psychological impact of being taken hostage is similar to that of being exposed to other trauma, including terrorist incidents and disasters for adults and children, end of quote. Memories and concentration can become impaired. Confusion and disorientation plus intrusive thoughts are pretty much a guarantee as well as flashbacks and memories of the kidnapping. A kidnapped survivor could also, for example, end up denying their experience whilst at the same time remaining hypervigilant the denial bit is thought to be a survival mechanism because it allows quote the individual a delayed period during which he or she has time to adjust to a painful reality end of quote some go into shock and will experience a sense of numbness as a result There is also a sense of helplessness and hopelessness which could then lead to dissociation and anhedonia, a fancy word that means loss of pleasure in doing that which was previously pleasurable. This then also leads to depression and oddly enough feelings of guilt. A kidnapped survivor can usually also become socially withdrawn, irritable, and would avoid just about anything that could remind them of what happened to them. Extended periods of captivity, something that was slowly but surely becoming Cassette's reality in 1965, was also found to lead to something called learned helplessness. The study says that in this case, survivors will come to believe that regardless of what they do to better their circumstances, nothing ever will be effective. The researchers went as far as saying that this learned helplessness was reminiscent of the behavior seen in concentration camp victims who were sadly called walking corpses due to the automaton-like state they were observed to be in. Needless to say, kidnapping survivors who were observed and cited in this study were also diagnosed with PTSD amongst many other things. As for their family and friends, I can imagine that they also go through a lot. There are not a lot of studies about this, if at all. However, HostageInternational.org stated that families of kidnapped individuals expectedly feel extreme loneliness, high levels of anxiety, and crippling depression, and that family members could benefit from medical attention as well as care for their well-being when dealing with an ongoing kidnapping case. Personally, and of course, this comes with a caveat to let you know that I am, in fact, no psychologist, but I think that families of survivors might also end up ignoring their own mental health and physical needs as they may deem that the survivor's well-being is paramount. This is to the detriment of the family members, I would assume, as they end up neglecting working through their own trauma and addressing their own needs. As one former colleague of mine says when dealing with social workers, who takes care of those who take care? Having said all that, let us now go back to Cosette's family who, by the end of January 1965, was probably beset by extreme worry due to the lack of communication from the kidnappers. By the end of January, another envelope arrived with the word rush scribbled on it. A courier dropped it off at the Tanwakios rice mill in Guagua Pampanga. There was an explanation as to why the drop-off in Angeles did not take place. The kidnappers did not feel safe because the city was said to have been quote-unquote burning hot, most probably referring to a perceived heavy police presence or something similar. So, the kidnappers had new instructions for another drop-off that was supposed to take place at 8am on the 26th of January. After giving very specific instructions, the note ended with almost a taunt and threat combined. Quote If your Jeep does not appear at 8 o'clock in the morning of January 26, we will understand. There will be no reason for us to appear, too, and no more further reasons for us left to appear anymore. Or if we do, it will take another time, maybe two or three months or two or three years. That depends upon the superiors." End of quote. And if you thought this was it, the drop off to finally get Cassette back, think twice. The following is a court excerpt of what had happened to Father De La Cruz, who was, again, chosen to be the ransom and handover emissary. At Barrio Sinipit, Santa Rita, some unidentified men fired shots at him, but missed. At the outskirts of Tila Dila, another barrio of Santa Rita, he heard another series of shots. He noted as he tried to drive faster that he could hardly control the steering wheel and realized that one of its tires must have been hit. When he stopped about half a kilometer away, another Jeep arrived with five armed men aboard. They offered to help him change the deflated tire and afterwards even volunteered to escort him to Borac. Thinking of the money he had with him, Father de la Cruz politely declined their offer and instead sought the barrio captain of the place to accompany him to the nearest army detachment. From there, he was escorted by army soldiers to Guagua, where he arrived at one thirty in the morning. He met the Tanwaquillo couple at the chapel, related his misadventure and returned the ransom money to them. That abortive episode was the last chance given to the Tanwakiyos to negotiate their daughter's release. No other message was received from her or her kidnappers. February 6, 1965 a normal day somewhere in Caloocan City, or so two women thought. On this day, Josefina Chan and Lilia Morales were having an unfortunate day after being apprehended for selling counterfeit money in a carinderia. At Camcrame, the two women were interviewed quite intensely, and both finally spilled the beans as to who their boss was and where this counterfeit business operated from. A team was then quickly formed and was sent the next day to a small town called Barrio Magsaysay in Guagua, Pampanga. As fate would have it, the head honcho of this clandestine counterfeit money operation was identified as no one other than Orador Pingol. Now, bear in mind that the police team that was pursuing him in this specific operation had no idea about cassette or what had happened in the past few months with all the frustrated drop-offs. And so this team took the two women with them to help them with their operation. After Pingol was identified, the women along with two other officers were ordered to head to Pingol's home on foot. Essentially, to scout him out ahead of the team's final coup to apprehend the counterfeit ringleader. The rest of the team was instructed to spread out to maybe determine if there were any ways for Bingol and his associates to escape. After all, the police team was determined to make a case against Bingol. His escape was out of the question. Now, whilst the two women and their chaperones headed to Bingol's front door, one of the other officers who was scouting the surroundings of his home headed for Bingol's backyard. He looked around and saw what he thought was a pig pen. Normally, this side would be nothing out of the ordinary. He found himself in a barrio after all, so pig pens are nothing unusual. Not everybody might have them, but if you see one, it is nothing to call home about. But I think what caught his attention was the fact that the pig pen had a cover on it. Curiosity got the best of the officer and he decided to uncover the pig pen. Only, it was not a pig pen after all. The cover he pulled off was hiding a hole in the ground that did not strike him as anything out of the ordinary at the beginning, so he decided to place the cover back, but then he heard it. A faint disembodied male voice came through, which startled the officer, who then warned whoever owned the voice to not start a fight. The officer drew his gun and pointed it in the direction of some bamboo pieces near the opening of the pig pen's hole. The pieces began to move and a hand hovered into view. The officer grabbed it, pulled it twice to finally wriggle the rest of the person free, and out came a man. He was none other than Orador Pingol. After he was identified, he was quickly turned over to the head of the police team. Two government agents who were part of that team then returned to where Bingol was discovered and again, a disembodied voice came through. And just like what happened with Bingol, the agents heard movement, then saw a hand emerge from the pig pen's opening. The hand seemed smaller, skinnier. As the agents pulled the hand, they were stunned to see an emaciated girl looking haggard and scared. It was Cosette, and at the point of her discovery, she had been gone from her family for 83 days. When I think about Cosette's case, it bothers me that she was discovered and rescued purely due to a coincidence. Even the court document that I mainly and majorly used to produce this episode throws shade at the fact that, quote, Cossette's eventual rescue was almost entirely fortuitous, certainly not the result of competent police work, end of quote. 83 days in, and the police could not even produce one solid lead despite the many communications and drop off proposals. Of course, we will never know the whole story and the way the police investigated Cassette's abduction, but were it not for the two women and their carelessness or laxity, Cassette would have stayed in that hole for a very long time, either dying later due to health reasons or due to violence at the hand of her abductors. It turns my stomach when I think about it. Now, after young Cassette was discovered, her health was of course prioritized as it was obvious that she was not taken care of at all by her abductors. She was rushed to the V. General Luna Hospital in Quezon City, where she stayed for nine days under medical treatment and strict observation. On the other side of the capital, Orador Pingol was taken to Camp Crame and processed. He then proceeded to give a statement that was very quickly assessed as being fabricated. In light of Bingol's refusal to give a truthful statement, NBI and CIS agents decided to revisit the crime scene and look closely at some of the things that were found after Cassette's rescue. There, they found drafts of Cassette's notes to her parents that were copied, for example. Now, remember, in all the letters sent to her parents, notes from Cassette were included. But as it turns out, at some point, it was not Cassette anymore who was writing the notes. Her words and penmanship were copied and then passed as her own. The agents also found newspaper clippings, police uniforms, some other letters and documents. When Pingol was later confronted with this material evidence found back at his place in Pampanga, he finally buckled and confessed. He also implicated Homer Jinko, Angel David, and Armando Morales. Following this much-awaited confession, Pingol agreed to help the NBI and CIS team with the arrest of the man he just implicated. Jinko was arrested in Guagua, Pampanga, Morales was arrested in Barrio Magsaysay, and David was arrested in Pilar Bataan. Much later on, both Angel David and Armando Morales also confessed, corroborating what Pingol had already confessed to. The prosecution seemed to have a slum-dunk case, with all the material evidence and confessions the police and agents were able to obtain. So, a trial was, of course, soon underway. At this point, I do want to clarify that this case involved in total six men, namely Orador Pingol, Homer Ginko, Armando Morales, Angel David, Jose Aguilos, and Maximo Gilas. Armando Morales, Angel David, Jose Aguilos, and Maximo Gilas were charged with the crime of kidnapping for a ransom as per the revised penal code. Pingol, Jinko, Morales, and David were tried jointly. Aguilos was allowed a separate trial, and the case against Gilas was dismissed provisionally upon motion of the prosecution. I'm going to talk briefly about the Pingol, Jinko, Morales, and David trial here with heavy focus on Pingol and Jinko because the only court document that exists publicly on the internet is an appeals document by the Supreme Court in which these two men were once appellants. This is the main reason we do not know much about what happened in the other trials and cases or about the other men in the Jinko and Pingol trial. The information is mainly about those two now having said all that let us now learn a little bit about what happened during the trial the trial produced a very interesting story that was formed by bingol's defense according to him the day back in november 1964 started out quite normally and he was even due to attend a business meeting with an old acquaintance when this meeting fell through Bingol, the old acquaintance, and another person from Marikina got together and somehow the old acquaintance proposed the idea of robbing someone's home, which in this case happened to be the Cancho home. Bingol then said that he was surprised when they finally executed their plan because that was when he saw Cosette, someone he knew from Pampanga. A decision was then made to kidnap her, but to then let her go somewhere near Guagua. Bingol, however, decided to not let her go after all after he remembered how he harbored some old grudge against Cosette's father, Sixto Tanwakiyo. And so with that change of heart, Cosette was taken all the way to Barrio Magsaysay, where she remained inside the small dugout for 83 days. Now, Pingol could hardly convince the court with this story. He could not answer a lot of the follow-up questions, for example, as to the physical descriptions of this old acquaintance or the other man from Marikina, or as to how a legitimate business meeting could quickly turn into a rather spontaneous kidnapping plot. As the court document stated, quote, There was too much fortuitous coincidence in the fact that the place was the house of the Canchos, where precisely Corazon, Cosette and was living, just as there was too little sense in the fact that the robbers would unnecessarily jeopardize their own safety by taking a hostage with them. And if robbery was intended, the loot was too insignificant. There was not even an attempt to ransack the house for really valuable articles. End of quote. The prosecution's theory of the case, which the trial court ended up believing, was that Cassette had always been the target and she was always going to be kidnapped. The defense tried to inject, of course, some reasonable doubt and went as far as saying that whatever confession was extracted from Pingol after he was presented with the evidence from his own home was done so under duress and after maltreatment and should therefore be disregarded. But the trial court had no problem rejecting that notion as well, arguing that if Bingol truly had been maltreated, he had plenty of opportunities to raise this. The court argued that if he had been physically abused to force out a confession that would align with the prosecution's case, he could have told his lawyers who in turn could have requested a physical examination of their client to prove physical abuse. But none of that happened. Sure, a suspect who was truly abused by officers of the law could have also chosen to just shut up in order to lessen the abuse, but one thing that led the court to believe that this was not being all the situation at all was the corroborating evidence. Everything that the agents and police found in Pampanga and the Cancho residence in Quezon City lined up with Pingol's second confession, the confession that was regarded as the most truthful of all the statements he had given. It was ultimately argued that even without the confession, the verdict and sentence by the trial court would have been the same. As for Homer Jinko, he denied all involvement and presented evidence that refuted Pingo's implication. Nevertheless, this evidence was not considered strong enough to get Jinko out of legal trouble. Ultimately, In a 137-paged decision, Judge Placido Ramos, presiding the court of first instance of Quezon City, found both main defendants guilty and ordered that both be sentenced to death on the 17th of August 1965. Morales and David were sentenced to life in prison. Now, there was something interesting in the sentencing of Jinko and Bingol. It would seem that the trial judge, despite having sentenced the two men to death, still recommended that their sentences be commuted to life imprisonment. Now, I know what you're thinking. Why is he walking back his own sentence? There's an easy explanation to that. In any legislation that relates to criminal law and sentencing, there's usually a recommended and or mandatory sentence. In a lot of cases, judges have the discretion to determine what is best in the cases they handle. But in other cases, they are strictly bound by the law and they must or have to sentence people in a specific way. This is what happened in this case. Back in 1965, kidnapping was considered a crime punishable by the death penalty only. Judge Placido Ramos had no choice. His only way to show that he was not in agreement with the sentence he gave was to recommend a different sentence, something that the justices at the Supreme Court had and has discretion to either accept or refuse. Judge Ramos's reason for recommending a lighter sentence was that the men did not sexually abuse or hurt Cassette in any other way. For that, it would seem, the judge had mercy on them. It was now up to the Supreme Court to decide if this was reason enough to let the men live. Now, since this was a capital case, aka a case, involving the death penalty, it was therefore submitted automatically to the Supreme Court for review, which is why we today have a document with the Supreme Court's decision. Fortunately for the two men, the highest court of the land affirmed what the trial court had decided. The two men were not sentenced to death. It is not clear what happened to them, whether they remained in prison until their deaths, or whether they were lucky enough to be pardoned and paroled at some point. As for Cassette, we really don't know much about what became of her. In a blog post I found, an unknown commenter offered to introduce the blogger to the Tanwa which made me think that maybe Cassette is still alive, or at least her descendants are, and that they managed to keep their lives private all these years, because why wouldn't they? The lasting trauma that kind of ordeal can have on someone is unspeakable, and it is so much better to start one's healing away from the eyes of the public. And the media. And with that, I want to thank you all, Lagim Fam, for being truly the most patient people. I've had some turbulent times behind me, and they are still a bit choppy despite social media appearances. I'm thankful that I can now restart my podcast journey after being off air for more than a month. I want to thank everyone who messaged me, everyone who kept suggesting cases, and everyone who continued to listen to my episodes. Please do not forget to follow me on all my socials and to give this podcast a good review and a five-star rating, both on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I truly appreciate those who managed to do so already. Thank you again. Until next episode, Lagim fam. Maraming salamat at mabuhay.